a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. One twenty is the time. I just uh, observed something interesting. It's the first time that I have seen President Joe Biden sign a piece of legislation into law. And I used to work in Washington, D.C., and I'm going back to work there in about a month now. Uh, and one of the things I have always paid close attention to when a president signs a piece of legislation, I, I watch the pen that they use. If you can remember uh, the, the instances where President Barack Obama would sign a piece of legislation, he would do so with multiple pens. There would be a lineup of uh, like eight or nine pens, and he would sign just a portion of his signature with each pen, those then being later handed out uh, as, as souvenirs, say, to the maybe staffers or members of Congress behind the legislation signed. Uh, and then, if you remember, it was a, a big Sharpie marker, uh, a specially adorned Sharpie marker used by uh, President Donald Trump when he would sign uh, with his big, bold, black signature. And uh, and I just for the first time saw Joe Biden, who used a single uh, what looked to be uh, a felt-tip pen, uh, and that's that's it. There was no lineup of uh, pens to the side, uh, using them as, as souvenir pens. Uh, so anyway, there is my pointless observation, and uh, we'll get into later the piece of legislation that he actually did sign, that nearly $2 trillion uh, stimulus package. Uh, but right now, uh, right now, I want to uh, talk to you about something that uh, caught my attention in the, the Deseret News. Uh, a few days back, a Wendy Leonard piece under the headline, Pandemic Created Optimal Conditions for Utah Organ Transplant Patients. I have been absolutely riveted and fascinated by the by the the impact that COVID has had on almost every element and angle of our lives, uh, and in the medical field, you know, obviously it is, you know, a virus, and so it itself has some direct impacts. But these uh, secondary and indirect impacts have uh, also. Uh, captured my attention. And so to help us understand exactly what the impact on uh, transplant recipients are, specifically liver transplants, joining us on the line is Dr. Richard Gilroy, medical director of the uh, liver transplant program uh, at Intermountain Healthcare. Uh, Dr. Gilroy, welcome to the program. How are you? Uh, Very good. Thank you for uh, having us on the show. Talk to me about what you have observed. There has been a dramatic increase in transplants uh, in not only Utah, but also Idaho and Nevada. Can can you talk to me at all about why that's the case and also the scale of the increase? Yeah, so the scale of the increase. So if we look at the country as a whole um, and what happened in 2020, I think everyone on this uh, call or listening would prefer 2020 to be a distant memory very soon, but it's not. The reality was that uh, in transplantation, every time you find a donor, uh, every time there's someone generous enough in the community to consider donation uh, in the situation where a loved one passes, uh, we have opportunities to save lives. And that may be as many as nine lives, with one being an intestinal transplant, which is rare, but something we do. A kidney, uh, you have two kidneys, so they can go to two different individuals. A liver can be split between a child and an adult quite easily. 
with lung transplantation, you can use one lung for each of two individuals, and then you have a heart, and you've got, obviously, a pancreas. You know, when we have a look at what happened in 2020, there were as many donors available as there were in 2019. But COVID-19 had a significant impact upon institutions. An institution like ours made modifications very quickly so that we were able to accommodate the fact that we needed to provide life-saving opportunities to patients whilst at the same time managing patients with severe illnesses in our system who had COVID-19. And what we did was with that adaptation, we were able to actually do transplants when other centers were getting congested. And that led to our significant increase in the total number of patients. And then we were able to list patients and see patients clinically because we moved to what are called virtual operations, which are where you actually do telemedicine approaches to clinical care. And in instances where we had to see patients, we just did. So we have been very lucky, but the real reason that more transplants were done in Utah and in Idaho is simply because the people of Utah and Idaho, in the face of a terrible situation, still identified donation as being the most important thing in life. Amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. Have we, seen, have we seen these levels fall off at all, or where does the trend stand right now? So when we have a look at the, the programs between us and the University of Utah and the Primary Children's Hospital, the total transplant numbers for the state are on the rise. We anticipate that more will happen, and some of this is because institutions like ours have identified that we are a, an institution that's associated with caring for the entire community. We're effectively an institution that is available to and donated to the community for providing care. So we help people get insurance so they can be delivered care. And we will see an increase in the total transplant numbers here. What we will see, which is a significant aspect, is that Inner Mountain is a, you know, will become a very much, an, it's always been a national figure, but we will be delivering more care in places like Nevada. And the total number of transplants performed by this institution will increase significantly over the next 12 to 24 months as we care for a large number of people in Nevada who don't have a liver transplant program and their transplant needs are under met by these services they already there they currently have provided so they need our help and we're going to be there who are the type of people who end up donating is there uh, are, are there any trends that you can identify in terms of who is uh, you know choosing to donate their organs or or, or is it a pretty uh, broad cross section of the uh, of the people so, you know, it's, a, it's a, a really important point you bring up. So the, the first thing is that anyone can potentially be a donor. And, you know, so there's really not age limits uh, that we look at. I mean, I've seen livers as old as 80 come from 80-year-old individuals who unfortunately have died of a stroke that caused an irreversible brain damage and, and brain death. And then for those individuals, they've become donors to individuals as young as 35 with an 80-year-old liver. So we know... In liver transplant, there are with certainty some livers out there that are over 100 years old uh, that are still wandering around the community just doing fine. Oh, wow. So age is one factor. The, the, the change in profile over the last, um, courtesy of you know the events associated with uh, the narcotic pandemic and uh, what we saw with that, um, we saw 
what I'm going to say, the silver, the only silver lining really to the uh, heroin pandemic was the fact that there were more donors being identified who were dying of overdoses that were subsequently used by us, and some of those had hepatitis C. And you might recall in 2016, sort of we're identified as one of the first centres in the world who actually started transplanting hepatitis C positive offers into hepatitis C negative individuals, and we've done over 30 of those. I believe the University of Utah may have started doing that recently, um, but uh, you know that's another thing. So people who have active drug use who die associated with drug use are considered as donors. People who die in motor vehicle accidents are considered as donors. Older people are considered as donors. Young people are considered as donors. Essentially, anyone can potentially be a donor, even with medical illnesses, if you have informed your family and you understand that the concept of give and let live, providing the opportunity to the community is terribly important because someday it might actually be you as a member of the community who needs that organ donor. Dr. Gilroy, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. It's been fascinating to look in at these trends, and it has been uh, encouraging to hear uh, that these trends continue in this direction and that uh, if you are listening now and have not necessarily considered whether or not you would like to possibly donate uh, a portion of your body to save the life of another, uh, think about it. Think about it and make the proper uh, you know, communications either to family or elsewhere to let it be known that that's a, a wish you'd like. Uh, Dr. Gilroy, thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. And the living donor aspect you talked about there where we have people in the community donating parts of their organs, um, like parts of a liver. We actually have been seeing that increase uh, dramatically over the last two years so that it's becoming a big way to save additional lives. And thank you very much for the time that you've provided me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, amazing stuff. Living donors, consider that. Think about it. Learn about it. If you uh, are of the mind and of the heart to, uh, to entertain something like that, uh, maybe seek out that opportunity today. We're going to take a, a break. Uh, when we return, we're going to spend some time with another doctor, this time uh, Dr. Josh Anderson from Brigham Young University, uh, an associate professor of biochemistry. Uh, the doctor has looked at a long list of myths associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. And on this day, a year removed from the dawn and the arrival of this pandemic, we're going to walk through some of the myths, and he'll help dispel them ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.